Please uh, take your Bibles or your tablet or phone, whatever you're looking at, and let's open up to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. We're continuing to work our way through this awesome book, deep. It's a deeply theological book, but when we get to chapter 12, it's going to become extremely practical on how God wants us to live out the gospel and live out the Christian life. Uh, today, 9, 10, and 11 are primarily focused on Israel, and we're going to be talking about why Israel has no excuse for her lostness. That's the thrust of Paul's uh, message here in Romans 10, uh, verses 14 to 21. All right, let's go ahead and pick it up. We'll start reading in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I shall make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, All the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Lord, shed light on this passage of Scripture and help us to see the implications for our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Here in Romans chapter 10, Paul is trying to help us understand why Israel didn't believe in Christ. He starts us way back in chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, where he says that he has great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart. Paul's grief-stricken. There's this heart sorrow for his fellow Israelites who were not believing in Christ. Most of Israel had rejected Jesus Christ and they weren't believing on their Messiah when he had came. And Paul's trying to figure out how can this be? Why did this happen? What are the reasons for Israel being lost? And we know Israel is lost because Paul said that he could wish that he were accursed and separated for, from Christ for them. Meaning that Israel is accursed and separated from Christ. And we know Israel was lost because in chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says that his heart's desire and his prayer to God for them is for their salvation, meaning they did not possess salvation. He says, I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So Israel was trying to be saved based on the works of the law trying to establish their own righteousness before God, and they wouldn't simply come and receive God's righteousness as a gift that comes through the work of Jesus Christ. So they were lost, and Paul is explaining here to the Roman believers why that is. And he comes up with two reasons, and they're very different from each other. 
There's a reason he gives in chapter 9 and another reason he gives in chapter 10. The first reason has to do with the sovereignty of God. The first reason is that God has not chosen all fleshly Israelites to be part of the true Israel. And he gives examples. He chose Jacob. He passed over Ishmael. He chose uh, Isaac, passed over I'm getting mixed up, aren't I? You guys know who I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, Isaac and Esau, Jacob and Ishmael. He chose Isaac and Jacob, passed over Esau and Ishmael. And then um, in verse 15, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. It depends on God who has mercy. Or verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. God is the potter, we are the clay. God is fashioning vessels. Some are made for honor, some to dishonor. Some are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and others are vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. That's his teaching here in Romans chapter 9, that God has a chosen people. And he has not chosen every single one of the human race. He has chosen a people for himself. And he's passed over others. And that's the first reason he gives for why not all the fleshly descendants of Abraham are saved. But the second reason, starting in chapter 9 verse 30, and going all the way through the end of chapter 10, is the responsibility of man. So the sovereignty of God comes first, then the responsibility of man, and he shows how Israel refused the gospel that they had been given. And so Israel is to blame for her lostness, because she had made a deliberate, willful choice to reject Jesus Christ, and God holds her responsible for that choice. And you know the same is true for people today. We can't just point to the doctrine of unconditional election and say, well, God's to blame if you're lost. God puts the blame on people. Like in John chapter 3. In fact, I didn't anticipate reading this, but I know this, it might help somebody to understand this. In John chapter 3, Jesus says in verse 18, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because... He has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So God's judgment comes upon people who do not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. There's the responsibility of man that's pinpointed there. And you have these two twin doctrines that run throughout the Bible. God never tries to tell us in the Bible how exactly those things harmonize. He just wants us to understand that they're both true and we need to live our lives based on both His sovereignty and our own responsibility. Now, as we go through Romans 10, 14 to 21, there's three really simple truths. Number one, Israel heard the gospel. Number two, Israel understood the gospel. Number three, Israel refused the gospel. And that's why there is no excuse for Israel's lostness. They can't blame it on God. They have to ultimately take responsibility for that themselves. So let's work our way through the passage. First of all, verses 14 to 18, Israel heard the gospel. Now let's remember the context. In verses 5 to 13, Paul was teaching them that the gospel that came to Israel was not complicated or difficult or inaccessible because he says 
It was close to you. It was near to you. This word of faith is in your mouth and in your heart in verse 8. He also says it's not difficult. It's not like you have to do something really, really hard. No, Christ has already done everything. We don't have to go to heaven and bring Christ down. And we don't have to go into the abyss and bring Christ up from the dead. God has already sent Christ down from heaven, the incarnation. God has already raised him from the dead, the resurrection. Everything that's necessary to be done for our salvation was already done by God. So it's not difficult for us. It's not inaccessible to us. And it's not complicated. He, he boils it down in verses 9 and 10. Our response is simply confessing with the mouth and believing with the heart. Not very simple, or not very complicated, is it? A child can confess and believe from the heart. So those are, are the truths that lead up to verse 13, where he says, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now at this point, he jumps into four how questions in verses 14 and 15. So let's read those questions. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Now it would be helpful for us to read those backwards. Because there's five steps that every person goes through in order to receive salvation. Let's, let's go backwards. God has to send someone. That person that God sends has to preach. The people that he preaches to have to hear. Some of those people that hear the preacher believe. And those that believe call on the name of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is saved. You see the steps? So it's sending, preaching, hearing, believing, and calling on the name of the Lord. Sending, preaching, hearing, believing, and calling. Those are the five steps that you, you envision as ascending a ladder. God sends, that person preaches, people hear, some believe, and those that believe call in the name of the Lord. Now, perhaps Israel was not at fault for not believing because maybe they never heard. Well, look at verse 15. Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. In other words, God has sent people who have brought good news of good things. Now, good news. What's, what's another word for the good news? The gospel. So this, this passage here in Romans 10 is talking about the gospel. We know that because it's good news of good things. So God has already sent people to preach the good news. And we know that God had sent people to Israel because Paul himself had gone to Israel. It's true. Uh, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. But remember that every city he goes into, where's the very first place he heads? The synagogue. Because that's where the Jews were. And he even says in this book, Romans chapter 1 verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Paul would always go to the, the Jew, to the synagogue, and he would preach to the Jews. Now when they rejected his message, he would take it to the Gentiles. So, Paul himself had been a preacher that God had sent to deliver the good news to Israel. But he wasn't the only one, was he? You've got Peter, 
In Galatians 2, he's called the, the apostle that goes to the circumcision. So he was especially selected by God to preach to the Jewish nation. And on top of Peter and Paul, you've got all kinds of other people in the Bible that did the same work. Barnabas, John Mark, Timothy, Silas, Epaphroditus, Tychicus, Epaphras, and we could go on and on. In, in 3 John 7, it talks about those who went out for the sake of the name. So John speaks about people who are going out, missionaries and church planters and Christian workers who are going out for the sake of the name of God to, to deliver this gospel message. Now, that brings us to verse 17, which we've heard often. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. The reason Paul brings up verse 17 here, the reason why he says that is because he's giving us three of the steps that he's already enumerated in verses 14 and 15. And those steps were preaching, hearing, and believing. Faith is believing. Faith comes from hearing, that's another step, and hearing by the word of Christ. What is, if you hear the word of Christ, what is that? That's preaching. Someone's preaching, others are hearing, and some are believing. The word of Christ, I believe what Paul means by the word of Christ is the word about Christ, which is the gospel of verse 15, the good news of good things. So it's just another catchphrase for the gospel. It's back in chapter 10, verse 8, where he talks about the word of faith, which we are preaching. That's another phrase for the gospel. It's the message of good news that comes to us through Jesus Christ. Now, notice something in verse 17. So faith comes from hearing. Comes. I just found myself meditating on that. Faith comes. That means it's not resident in every human heart that is exercised at will. It comes. Faith comes. When does it come? When the gospel is heard. Now, it doesn't come to every person who hears the gospel, right? It comes to some people who hear the gospel. See, the, if you think about how humans and animals generate new life, there is um, a sperm united to an egg. I know this is a weird analogy, but just stay with me. A sperm and an egg come together and new life is produced. Well, think about the Word of God and the Spirit of God be liking the sperm and the egg. When the Spirit joins himself to the gospel, new life is created in the heart of the person hearing. God engenders faith. He gives life through faith. In fact, um, Kenneth Wiest, who is a Greek scholar, he wrote this, As the gospel is preached, the Spirit engenders faith in the gospel message in the hearts of those elected to salvation. So that's what Paul is talking about faith comes when God grants that faith through the hearing of the gospel being preached. Now Israel is a case in point that God doesn't grant this faith to every person because most of Israel didn't have faith. They, they were practicing unbelief. But in verse 18 he makes it very, very explicit. He says, I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Now there's the answer. Did Israel hear? Yes. He answers yes. And then he quotes Psalm 19 verse 4 as an interesting passage to prove his point. 
Because Psalm 19.4 starts off with, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. So natural revelation. You look up into the sky and you see the sun and the moon and the stars and you know the God who created all of that must be glorious. He must be very powerful and he must be very wise to order all of what we see around us so that it all works. <laughs> and that kind of thing. But interestingly, Paul quotes that to prove the point that Israel has heard. And I, I don't think he's... He's trying to say that Israel has heard the gospel through natural revelation. I simply th think that he's borrowing biblical language from the psalm and he's applying it to the propagation of the gospel that has gone out to Israel. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Which is true. In, in the first 100 years of church history there was an explosion of people being converted all over the known world. There is a man by the name of R.H. Glover who in 1925 wrote a book called The Progress of Worldwide Missions and he said on the basis of all the data available it has been estimated that by the close of the apostolic period which at the latest would be 100 AD the total number of Christian disciples had reached half a million. Okay, so Pentecost, you've got 120. 70 years later, at the most, later, you've got 500,000. So there was an explosion of disciples in the first century. Justin Martyr, who was a very early Christian apologist, he died in 165 AD. He wrote, There is no people, Greek or barbarian, or of any other race, by whatever title or manners, they may be distinguished, however ignorant of arts or agriculture, whether they dwell in tents or wander about in covered wagons, among whom prayers and thanksgivings are not offered in the name of the crucified Jesus to the Father and Creator of all things. So by 165 at the very latest, he says every culture, every language, every place you go, people are praying and giving thanks through the name of this crucified Jesus. So Christianity had spread like wildfire in the first 100 years and it had spread to Israel. They had heard. That's what Paul's point is in verse 18. And we even know that because when Paul wrote to the Colossians, he says some pretty remarkable things there in the first chapter. He says in verse 5, the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. <laughs> so the gospel has come to you just like it's come to everyone throughout all the world. And he's writing, this is the book of Colossians maybe 66 AD or so. Paul's in prison in Rome and he's writing it. So in 33 years all the world had had some kind of a witness of this gospel. And then in verse 23 of Colossians 1. He says, you're saved if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. <laughs> so even in the first century, Paul's saying it's been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in all the world. So the apostles had made disciples who had spread and they were going out in all directions preaching this good news to all the people. And Israel was one of those people groups that had heard the message. So Israel has heard. 
They can't claim that they've never heard and that's why they're not to blame for being lost. No, they have heard, according to Paul. Secondly, they understood. Because if you go back to Romans 10, look at 19 and 20. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? Well, maybe they heard, but they didn't know. They didn't understand it. First, Moses says, and now he quotes Deuteronomy 32:21, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Now can Israel claim ignorance? She can't. Paul says that she knew as well as heard. See Paul's point is that Israel was well aware that the Gentiles were flocking to Jesus Christ. And it was God's plan to provoke Israel to jealousy by calling and converting the Gentile people. And who were these Gentile people who were coming to Christ? Well, verse 19 says it was a nation without understanding. They didn't have understanding and that they were coming to Christ. And back in chapter 2, Paul shows how the Jews looked on the Gentile people. Verse 19 Paul says that the Jews are confident that they are themselves a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, and a teacher of the immature. Now who does he have in mind? The Gentiles. The Jews looked at the Gentiles as being blind, in darkness, foolish, and immature. They were much superior in wisdom. And actually they were. They had scripture knowledge. The Jews were steeped in the scriptures. But Paul's point is, hey, wait a minute. You, the, Israel understood. Israel who is steeped in scripture surely could understand the simple gospel message if these ignorant and blind and foolish Gentiles understood it and were flocking to Christ and were being saved. Surely if they could understand the message, then Israel could. So yes, they heard this gospel and they knew the gospel but the third one is they refused the gospel look at verse 16 we skipped over that earlier but let's go back to it Paul says that God is sending out preachers to proclaim this good news however they did not all heed the good news for Isaiah says Lord who has believed our report okay Paul's being very generous when he says they did not all heed the good news because most of them rejected it. But he's being generous to the nation of Israel here. And then he quotes Isaiah 53 1 and if you know Isaiah 53 it's a passage about Jesus. It's about the Messiah, the suffering servant. And it begins with who has believed our report and to whom did the arm of the Lord, who, did, who is that revealed? So Isaiah looks forward into time when Jesus would come from heaven to the earth and die as a suffering servant and he says, who has believed the report about this crucified Messiah? And of course he's speaking primarily of Israel and the answer is not many. Not many believe the report. They did not all heed, the word heed means to obey. Not all of Israel obeyed the good news and to heed the news means to believe the report. Just put those two together in verse 16. So they didn't believe, they didn't heed this gospel. Which brings us down to the very last verse, verse 21. 
God says, but as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. They're disobedient. They would not obey this gospel. And they were obstinate. The word obstinate means stubbornly refusing to change one's opinion or chosen course of action despite attempts to persuade one to do so. I thought that was so great. I went on Google, typed in obstinate, and that's the definition that popped up. And I thought that's perfect for what the Jews did when the gospel came to them. They stubbornly refused to change their opinion or their chosen course of action despite attempts of all these early preachers to get them to do so. So they're responsible for their lostness. And God will hold them responsible and God will judge Israel for rejecting Jesus Christ. Now that's the basic exposition of the passage. So let's take some time to draw out some implications that kind of flow from the things that we read here. Okay? And I've got four that I want to bring up. First one is people who never hear the gospel will perish. Now I know this is controversial and you may, some of you may not believe this, but I'm going to try to persuade you that that has to be the truth. A lot of people like to think, well, if someone's off in some land and they never hear about Jesus Christ, then they're going to go to heaven because they never had a chance to hear about him. But think about what we're saying. If they won't perish, why does God send preachers? Why did Jesus give the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature if they're going to go to heaven without the preacher? Do you, you see that? If we preach to the heathen, we actually do them a disservice if they go to heaven without hearing the gospel because once we preach to them, now they're responsible for the message that we've given to them. And so now they're under condemnation if they don't believe it. Before we went to them, according to this other theory, they were okay. They were going to heaven anyways. But now they're going to hell because we preached to them and they rejected the gospel. You see, it just doesn't make any sense to think that the heathen or the people that don't have the gospel are all saved and they're all innocent and God's going to take them all to heaven because they never had a chance to hear. Well, then why did Jesus even come in the first place to die on the cross for their sins if they're ignorantly they could get to heaven on their own? It also means that when we send missionaries out that bring the that we are squandering millions and millions of dollars sending missionaries that aren't necessary for people to go to heaven because if we just leave them alone, they're fine as they are. So we're wasting millions of dollars and we're sending out thousands upon thousands of missionaries around the world that are just wasting their life and their time and sacrificing everything to bring a message to people that leads many of them to condemnation whereas before, according to this other theory, they were fine. <laughs> you see, there's just overwhelming evidence in my mind to prove that it doesn't matter if they've never heard the gospel, they're lost. And that actually matches what I see in Scripture because Scripture talks about them being two representatives, Adam and Christ. All men are either represented by Adam or Christ. And what does the Bible teach about how people are born into the world? They're born dead in trespasses and sins. They're born by nature, children of wrath. They don't have to reject Jesus to be lost. They're born lost. They're already born lost. That's why someone's got to take the gospel to them because they're lost. And only the gospel can bring salvation to them. 
Do you see the immense importance of Christian missions? I mean, to me, I'm kind of getting into my second point here. But anyway, the first point is, I believe, and I think the scriptures bear this out, that people who never hear the gospel are going to perish. That's how serious this passage is. The second one is, the church has not fulfilled the Great Commission. I did some research online and found out that there are about 7,000 unreached people groups in the world today. There's over 14, I think there's 16,000 total people groups that we have identified. And a people group is not like Russia. It's like any subset of people that have their own language or their own culture. So almost half, 7,000 is um, well, about 40%, of all the people groups in the world have not been reached yet. Meaning there is no native communities of believers to evangelize that people. There is no self-perpetuating church that's making disciples and planting churches in these unreached people groups. And 42% of the world's population are in these 7,000 unreached people groups. So almost half of the world are in these unreached people groups. And isn't that tragic that after 2,000 years, Jesus told us 2,000 years ago to preach the gospel to every creature, but yet here we are 2,000 years later and there's still almost half of the world's population that's in an unreached people group without a church that can bear witness to the truth of the gospel to them. And that's why, folks, mission is important. That's why it's the job of the church to get the Great Commission accomplished. That's why... We need to either go or send people to reach the people that have never heard the gospel. Can it be right that we would only think of ourselves here in the United States and we ought to think about our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers and the people that live around us? Yes, we ought to bear witness to them. But we can't ignore that there are millions. Well, say there's 7 billion people in the world. There's about 3 billion people in these unreached people groups that need to hear the gospel to be saved. Can we just close our eyes to that and think, well, that's somebody else's problem? We, it's all our responsibility to do something. If God hasn't called us to go personally, we can send somebody, we can give financially so that someone has the means whereby they can go, and we can pray for the success of that person on the mission field. And think about our dear brother Anthony going this Friday on a trip, representing our church. We ought to be behind him. And if he needs money for this trip, we ought to be giving to him and we ought to be praying for him every day while he's on this trip. And not only for him, but for Don and for Joy and for all the other people on this trip. And I would encourage the rest of you to consider in the future maybe going on one of these trips. They go two or three times a year to get exposed. If you go, you'll come back a different person because you're going to develop a heart for the people that live there. And I know that because we went to China and that happened to me in China, happened to me in Mexico, happened to me when I went to Belarus. Pray about whether the Lord would have you go on a short-term mission to see what is happening in the rest of the world and ask Him to give you a heart for the people that are out there that are perishing without Christ. I love Bibles for Asia because their objective is to reach these unreached people groups. <laughs> They're trying to, through technology, make audio tapes of, of the gospel and the scriptures so that people can hear them in their own language for the very first time. Now, isn't that awesome? 
that a people group could, for the first time ever, could actually hear the gospel in their own language. And, and how, did, how did we get the privilege of just kind of stumbling upon Bibles for Asia? It so fits the mission of the church and the bridge's mission. It's wonderful that we ought to throw ourselves behind that work and do whatever we can to propagate it and help them reach the unreached peoples of the world. Okay, that was number two. The church has not fulfilled the Great Commission and we need to do whatever we can to try to help that come to pass. Throw ourselves into the work. Number three. Another implication from this passage. People who have heard the gospel are more accountable than those who haven't. Now Israel was accountable. Israel was responsible. But what about people that have never heard the gospel? Now I've also already said that I believe that people who never hear the gospel will perish. But they're not as responsible as Israel was because Israel heard the gospel many, many times and refused it and obstinately rejected it. You say, well, they're both perishing. How can be one, one be more responsible than the other? Well, it comes from something that Jesus taught in Luke chapter 12. And there he's talking about his servants, but he makes a point. He brings out a principle in verse 47 and 48, where he says, And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. So you've got two servants. One of those servants knew the master's will. He didn't get ready. He didn't act in accordance with the master's will. What's going to happen with him? He receives many lashes. You've got another servant. He didn't know the master's will. And so because he didn't know it, he didn't act in accord with it. What happens to him? He receives but few. Many lashes, few lashes. What is the difference? One knew the master's will, one didn't. In other words, people are responsible for the gospel light that they have received. They become accountable to what they know. Israel heard, Israel understood, she's more accountable, she's more responsible than the heathen that have not heard it. Now it doesn't mean that the heathen are saved, it simply means that if I understand this right, God's punishment upon the people that knew the truth and would not repent and believe will be greater than people who never heard the truth to begin with. It's a kind of a mind-blowing concept to me. There's lots of responsible people here in this room. Please don't be one of those people that knew the Master's will and did not act in accord with it. You're responsible for acting according to the gospel truth that you have received. Repent and believe upon that gospel and follow Christ. The fourth implication from this text, when we go back to Romans 10, the last two verses, is that God does unconditionally elect people to salvation, but at the same time He desires the salvation of all. Let's put these together. Look at verse 20. Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Well, wait a minute. 
If God is being found by those who didn't seek for him, how did they find him if they weren't seeking for him? He says, I became manifest to those who didn't ask for me. If they weren't asking for God, how did God become manifest to them? This is talking about the doctrine of sovereign grace, God's unconditional election that God himself determined that even those who weren't seeking for him, he was going to enable them to find him. And even those who weren't asking for God, God is going to manifest himself to them. So we have the same truth that we saw in chapter 9. The sovereignty of God and salvation. But the very next verse, <laughs> where it says, As for Israel, he says, All the day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Now, why do people stretch out their hands? Usually, what's that for? When you get down on your knees and your granddaughter's over there and you stretch out your hands, what are you doing? Come to me. Come to me. I want to hug you. I want to hold you. I want to embrace you. I want you to be in my arms, right? The Lord is holding out his hands, not just for one minute. Try holding out your hands like this for 15 minutes and you'll see how hard that is. Your arms and your muscles are burning. God's holding out his hands all the day long, and that day that he's talking about is a 3,000 year day. All the day long, continually holding out his hands. To who? A disobedient and an obstinate people. How can the same man who wrote Romans 9 and said, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires, how can he say in Romans 10 that God is holding out his hands all the day long to a disobedient and obstinate people? Evidently, it didn't bother Paul in the least. <laughs> he believed in the sovereignty of God and he believed in the responsibility of men and he believed that God desires the salvation of all. Now, to desire the salvation of all does not mean that God has decreed the salvation of all. There is a difference between those two things. But there is still within the heart of God a calling. Come, come. And his calling is real and it's sincere. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Now I want to show three passages to you where the Bible writers have no difficulty at all going from one verse to the next and talking about sovereignty and then responsibility and it doesn't bother them. <laughs> so let's look at those. Matthew 11 is the first one. Look at verse 25. These are the words of Jesus. 11, Matthew 11, 25. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Who who knows, let's see, anyone, not and nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. So who knows the Father, according to Jesus? Only those the Son wills, the word wills means chooses, only the one that the Son chooses to reveal the Father to, know the Father. And in verse 25, He 
hides these things from certain people. So he hides them from some and he chooses to reveal them to other in verse 27 and look at the very next verse come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest the same Jesus who just got done telling us that God is sovereign and who is saved invites all he hides the truth from some but he invites all you see it there and there's no it's like Jesus wasn't worried about it <laughs> no we get worried because we don't understand how that can be but Jesus wasn't he just goes from one to the other as though this is completely normal and natural um, okay let's go to another one let's go to John chapter 6 look at verse 35 John 6 35 Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. So there is an invitation there. He who comes. Not the elect sinner, if you come. Just he who comes. Anyone who comes will not hunger. And anyone who believes in me will never thirst. But then two verses later in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Come to me. Anyone who desires, anyone who's hungry, anyone who's thirsty. But the one who does come is the one the Father gave me. Do you see that? And there's only one verse in between those. And it doesn't bother Jesus in the least to speak out of both sides of his mouth because both things are absolutely true at the same time. Well, let me show you one more. The book of Acts, chapter 13. Okay, Acts 13, look at verse 38 and 39. We'll start there. This is the conclusion of Paul's sermon in the synagogue to the Jewish people. He says, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, that is, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. So there's a universal invitation. Anyone, whoever you are, if you believe in Christ, you'll be forgiven and you'll be freed from all things. But then skip down to verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. He starts off with this universal invitation and offer but then we see in verse 48 the ones who do take him up on the offer are those who had been appointed to eternal life. You have the sovereignty of God and you have this invitation to all and you have the responsibility of man all intertwined and all laced throughout the scriptures wherever you go and it's not like you can take one out because it doesn't seem to fit the other one what I want you to do bridge folks is <laughs> embrace the paradox embrace the sovereignty of God and embrace the responsibility of man and embrace the idea that God does desire the salvation of all embrace those things even though you can't figure out exactly how they work together 
we ought to be comfortable with every verse in the Bible. We ought to be comfortable with the verse that says that there are vessels of mercy prepared for destruction. We ought to, be, we ought to believe that verse. It's in our Bible. We ought to be comfortable with the verse that says, He has mercy on whom he has mercy and he hardens whom he desires. That's in our Bible. We have to believe those verses. But we should also believe just as strongly in verses like, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And those two truths are not at odds with each other. God knows exactly how they fit. It's our responsibility to believe the word whether we can completely understand how they mesh together. And even the theologians can't figure it out, so don't feel bad if you can't. I can't figure it out, <laughs> but I see it in my Bible, and we are to be Bible disciples. Uh, the Word of God driven and ruled disciples of Jesus. This is the book that gives us light. This is the, this is the lighthouse that's going to take us home to heaven. We've got to know this book, and we've got to believe the book, whether or not we can reconcile everything or not. Don't worry if you can't. Now there are certain pockets of Christians who love the idea that God is sovereign. And so they explain away all the verses about the responsibility of man and all the verses about God's desire for the salvation of all. They explain those away. My dad used to call it, they would squeeze certain verses. <laughs> they squeeze the verses to fit into their preconceived bubble over here. But there's also a group of Christians that so believe and love the idea that God desires the salvation of all, that they reject all those other verses that talk about God's sovereignty and salvation. So they don't like Romans 9, and they do whatever they can to squeeze Romans 9 into their bubble over here. And let's not have any bubbles, and let's not do any squeezing. <laughs> let's try to just take the Bible and say, what is the natural, plain meaning of this text without hacking off this edge and that edge to fit it into our preconceived ideas. When Paul wrote this letter, what was he intending to communicate? And let's just run with that. And let's not worry about some other verse for, the, for right now. Let's embrace that truth and allow it to change our lives. See, the thing is, we need all of these truths. You need the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Because it's like an immovable, unshakable rock that's the foundation for your feet. You don't want to be walking on shifting sand when you're going through this Christian life. You need a rock that will never move, and that's what the sovereignty of God is. We need that. But we also need this doctrine of the responsibility of man. We need to fear God. Let him who stands take heed lest he fall. We need to know that I need to take heed lest I fall. I know that I'm responsible for my decisions and I'm making real decisions that count. And so I need to take that into account. I need to fear the Lord. And I need to imitate God and also pleading with people and inviting people to come and being like God and desiring the salvation of all. Like Paul does in Romans 10.1, he's already said that he knows not all the fleshly descendants of Abraham are the true Israel. But then he turns right around and he says it's his heart desire and his prayer to God is for their salvation. You see, he's like God in that respect. He desires their salvation. So should we. We should desire the salvation of every person we meet. And we should do whatever we can to invite them and call them and woo them and plead with them and persuade them. We shouldn't say, oh, well, God's sovereign. I guess he'll save him if he wants to. No! <laughs> 
God, even God doesn't do that. God he stretches out his hands to them all day long. Come, come, come. And that's what we ought to be doing with people. Come to Christ. Don't stay away. Turn from that life of sin. Turn loose of the sin that's in your hands and receive the treasure that he's given to you. So brothers and sisters, don't be a lopsided believer. Like all your weight is on one side. It's not good. We need to be balanced. The responsibility of man balances the sovereignty of God. This is, this is healthy food for you. If you can take in these truths and believe them and walk in both of them. You won't get off in extremes on one side or the other. You'll be a Bible Christian. Not just you know, a pet doctrine Christian. You're going to be a Bible Christian because all of the Bible will be believed and it will run through your veins. Let's pray. Lord, thanks. Thank you for your word. May it have its intended work. Lord, I don't know what you're desiring to do in every person here, but you certainly have a plan and purpose for each one. And wherever anybody needs a special touch, oh Holy Spirit, would you apply the truths that we've looked at today so that we might repent, we might be corrected, we might receive your joy, we might fear, we might trust, we might be comforted, and we might be encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen.